0: Welcome to Counter-Apologetics, I'm your host, Emerson Green, and today we'll be continuing into part two of our discussion on heaven. I don't know how any of us would get to heaven if we didn't have a soul a non-physical substance separate from our physical bodies that is able to contain the information that defines you and carry on the processes that define you after your physical body decays. But if all we are is a collection of atoms, which is what appears to be the case, there's just no way for the information that is you to be conserved and transmitted somewhere else. Your first-person subjective experience appears to emerge out of the particular arrangement of atoms that defines who you are. Change that arrangement, say in the brain, even by just a little, and fundamental parts of your psyche can be changed. If you're more than a collection of matter, if you argue that your personality, desires, or conscious experience are beyond the physical world, why can I simply rearrange matter and change core parts of your personality and even alter your conscious experience? For more on substance dualism and these sorts of questions and the responses from dualists, you can listen to Science vs. the Soul from a while back. Moving along, I've heard conservation of energy, that energy cannot be created or destroyed, invoked to support the idea that we will persist after death. But the energy is not what you should be concerned with. Yes, your body's energy won't be destroyed, it'll be going to microorganisms most likely, but it's the information that makes you, you. It's the complicated processes of your brain and the rest of your body that interact to create yourself. The self being an emergent phenomenon that can stop happening if we manipulate the underlying processes that generate it. When you put out a fire, the fire doesn't go anywhere, the process just stops. The flames were obviously real, and no energy was destroyed. But the fire doesn't exist anymore. The concept of emergence can help clarify this point. Emergence is an important idea, and it happens to relate to the subject at hand, so let's take a moment to get on the same page about what it means. Unfortunately, the word has been used in more than one way, which has muddied the waters for those who want to use the term in a sensible way. I distinguish between weak and strong emergence to try to dispel some of the more dubious ways emergence is used. Weak emergence refers to a different level of analysis or a different way of talking about some phenomenon, which I'll explain in more detail. Strong emergence, on the other hand, refers to something truly new coming into existence that can't be explained, even in principle, by its more fundamental constituents. So I reject strong emergence entirely, but weak emergence, or as I'll call it going forward, emergence, is one of the most powerful explanatory frameworks ever developed, at least in my mind. So let me read a little from The Big Picture by Sean Carroll, which is where I first learned about emergence back in 2016 when the book came out. Quote, Why does the world of our everyday experience seem so different from the world of fundamental physics? While there is one world, there are many ways of talking about it. We refer to these ways as models, or theories, or vocabularies, or stories. It doesn't matter. Aristotle and his contemporaries weren't just making things up. They told a reasonable story about the world they actually observed. Science has discovered another set of stories, harder to perceive but of greater precision and wider applicability. It's not good enough that the stories succeed individually. They have to fit together. One pivotal word enables that reconciliation between all the different stories, emergence. Like many magical words, it's extremely powerful but also tricky and liable to be misused in the wrong hands. A property of a system is emergent if it's not part of a detailed, fundamental description of the system, but it becomes useful or even inevitable when we look at the system more broadly. This is closest to the notion of a hierarchy of sciences. In this view, we start with physics at the most microscopic and comprehensive level. Out of that emerges chemistry, and then biology, and then psychology, and finally sociology. It's this hierarchical picture that leads people to talk about levels when they discuss emergence. Lower levels are more microscopic, fine-grained descriptions, while higher levels are more macroscopic and coarse-grained. What matters is not the existence of a hierarchy, but the existence of different ways of talking that describe the same underlying world and are compatible with each other when their domains of applicability overlap. End quote. Emergence unifies all the sciences and creates a coherent picture of reality. It breaks down the illusory boundaries between disciplines. It's one of the defining elements of my worldview and has been for a few years now. It's not that I have something unique or profound to say about it, I just use it all the time. It's such a powerful theoretical framework and so clarifying when you're trying to make sense of complex systems and how our knowledge of the natural world hangs together. So, back to the subject at hand, I think that what we see suggests that you emerge. Your personality, your first person point of view, your sense of self, all appear to emerge from more fundamental, interacting parts like an atom from subatomic particles, or like sociological, political, and economic systems emerge from a bunch of interacting psychological systems. Political systems and economic systems are as real as tables and chairs and molecules. They're all higher level descriptions, stories, theories, or different ways of thinking about things we see. We can talk about the same phenomenon on a sociological level, a psychological level, a biological level, and in principle, a chemical or physical level, though it would be impractical and impossibly cumbersome. They're all just different ways of talking about collections of matter behaving in some way. So as for the subject of where does something go when it stops existing, imagine a sociological system in which every single psychological being died except for one or imagine a molecule where we ripped away every single atom that composed it and threw them to the wind except for one lone atom. The higher-scale system that emerged from the interacting lower-scale systems isn't there anymore, but it didn't go anywhere. And as I mentioned, your personality, your first-person point of view, your memories, your sense of self, and so on, all appear to emerge. Substance dualists agree that my body is made of physical material. We both agree that our bodies are made of atoms. But when my mind wants to raise my right arm, my physical arm goes up. How is it if I have an immaterial soul that my mind, which isn't a part of the natural world, interacts causally with the natural world and moves the chunk of atoms we're calling my arm? I thought our soul was undetectable by science. If you want to say there's another kind of material in addition to the matter of your brain, You have to explain how that something else interacts with the protons, neutrons, and electrons that make up your brain and the rest of your body. You also have to explain how the laws of physics relevant to your body are incomplete or just wrong. Substance dualists are trying to say that there's this stuff that routinely influences matter, but somehow, every controlled experiment we've ever performed has failed to detect such an influential particle. If this stuff does somehow interact with physical matter, why haven't we actually found it? It apparently interacts with matter all the time, so you'd think the laws of physics would be violated regularly, since they currently don't include any reference to this substance or its interacting with matter. You'd think that all kinds of things would be screwed up all the time, in the same way we would expect all kinds of experiments and technology to stop working if we suddenly stopped taking the existence of electrons into account. If we just chose a particle at random to ignore completely in all our experiments, nothing would come out the way we expected. And yet, this isn't happening even though we're ignoring this very influential soul stuff that routinely affects protons, neutrons, and electrons. Somehow, we've missed it, while managing to build incredible technology and create life-saving medicine, and while building other fields of science that are contingent on our understanding of physics, like chemistry and biology, without ever discovering a single thing that contradicts these woefully incomplete laws.
1: There are other phenomena, such as extrasensory perception, which cannot be explained by this known knowledge of physics here. And uh, it is interesting, however, that that phenomenon has not been well established and uh, (laughs) that uh, we cannot guarantee that it's there. So if it could be demonstrated, of course that would prove that the physics is incomplete and therefore it's extremely interesting to physicists, whether it's right or wrong. And uh, many, many experiments exist which show it doesn't work. The same goes for astrological influences. If it were true that the stars could affect the day that it was good to go to the dentist, then, as in America we have that kind of astrology, then it would be wrong, the physics theory would be wrong because there's no mechanism by uh, understandable in principle from these things that would make it go. And that's the reason that there's some skepticism among scientists with regard to those ideas.
0: All the atrocities in the Old Testament, the slavery, genocide, the brutal and arbitrary hierarchies, it's all very distant and abstract to believers, so it's not hard to excuse with some half-baked explanation. But everyone knows someone who has miscarried or lost a child. So despite the belief that we're all born evil thanks to original sin, many Christians believe that fetuses or infants or children who die young go to heaven if not for scriptural reasons, because the alternative is simply too hard to swallow, even for believers who defend a character like Yahweh. And it's certainly a relief that Christians, for the most part, are not teaching aggrieved mothers and families that they're deceased toddlers in hell, but this weaseling out of the implications of original sin has some implications of its own. For example, why not kill all the young people that you truly love, unless you're so selfish that you're willing to risk their going to hell for an eternity just so you can spend a few decades with them? The least you could do is perform lots of abortions so those unborn souls go straight to heaven, with no possibility of going to hell. Or even older children, as long as they're below the age of accountability. I don't expect Christians to suddenly become pro-choice to send people to heaven, even though they should if they really believe what they're saying but the vast majority of terminated pregnancies don't come to an end artificially or in an abortion clinic. We know things now that our goat-herding ancestors who wrote the Bible didn't know. For example, we now know how haphazard and unintelligent the reproductive process actually is, and we know just how few of the human lives that begin naturally ever come to term. According to the researcher Greg Paul, as few as 25% of all conceptions are carried to term, based on data from embryology and from neonatal doctors. So as many as 75% of human lives that begin, beings that have eternal souls and, according to many, should be granted full personhood and rights, die naturally before birth, often before the mother is even aware that she's pregnant. That's the majority of souls already. We can go on to consider the infants who die in childbirth or shortly thereafter, add to that the children who die before the age of accountability, whenever that is. The point is that these are not edge cases. Of all the humans that have ever existed, they're the rule and not the exception. The ones who die young and therefore go straight to heaven are easily the majority. So this means, as Valerie Tirico puts it, 98% of heaven's occupants are embryos and toddlers. That statement hinges on the idea that the unborn and the very young go to heaven. If you stay consistent with your concept of original sin, they go to hell in which case 98-plus percent of the occupants of hell are embryos and toddlers, and never had the chance to accept or reject God in their lifetime. Either way, the theological implications are significant. I'm going to go on quoting Valerie Tirico. Most fertilized eggs die before implanting, followed by embryos and fetuses that self-abort, followed by babies and then little kids. A serious but startling statistical analysis by researcher Greg Paul suggests that if we include the unborn, more than 98% of heaven's inhabitants, some 350 billion, would be those who died before maturing to the point that they could voluntarily accept the gift of salvation. The vast majority of the heavenly host would be robots, meaning they never had moral autonomy and never chose to be there. Christian believers, ironically, would be a 1-2% to minority, even if all 30,000 plus denominations of believers actually made it in." End quote. So, if we're being extremely generous, we can say that about 1% of heaven's occupants are people who accepted the gift of salvation using their free will that God granted them on earth. Some apologists like Alvin Plantinga bite the bullet and say that there is no free will in heaven. God granted it to us for a short time, which was his plan all along. He has his reasons. But the age of accountability and the all zygotes go to heaven doctrine happen to conflict with the Christian understanding of free will. The vast, overwhelming majority of heaven's inhabitants didn't freely or voluntarily choose God at all. I might have forgiven a believer for waving this all away as insignificant if it weren't for the fact that we're talking about either the vast majority of those in heaven or the vast majority of those in hell. We're not talking about a tiny fraction of souls here, we're talking about pretty much everyone. Think about the standard Christian theodicies free will is an outstanding good, moral freedom is critically important suffering is an important part of growth, or even consider a central part of the Christian narrative where God dies for our sins so we could go to heaven. Well, if the unborn go to paradise despite original sin, most of the people in heaven got there without any help from Jesus' death on the cross. Not some of them, most of them. They never had free will, they never grew from suffering, they never chose to accept or reject salvation. So what's the point of this earth again? If heaven is any better than earth, then this isn't the best of all possible worlds. So that eliminates the delusional, panglossian answer that God couldn't have done any better. If we have no free will in heaven, allowing paradise to have less suffering than earth, then what was the point of ever having it? The majority of heaven's inhabitants never had free will and didn't choose to be there. It's almost like this theology was crafted haphazardly piece by piece over time by primates. None of this makes any sense and it seems like solving one problem only creates ten more. In nearly any religious discussion, the question of how do you know that is always right under the surface and is never really answered. For me, the epistemology of religion is where it all falls apart. I've elaborated on flawed religious ways of knowing probably a dozen times, but it was my primary exit route. Faith, revelation, consulting ancient texts, prophecy, intuition, dreams, some personal experience, or your subjective certainty can't justify a claim you're making about reality. And if you take those away, there is absolutely no reason to believe really in any afterlife, but certainly not in the versions of it that have been presented by religion. I brought this up because there's a vision of heaven that most Christians seem to subscribe to. The mainstream conception of heaven comes to us from disparate, contradictory texts written at different times that were eventually incorporated into what we now call the New Testament. The common imagery associated with heaven actually is based on the Bible in large part, as opposed to hell, where many of the most iconic elements come from extra-biblical sources like Dante's Inferno or the Apocalypse of Peter, which was part of the Bible at one point but eventually lost its status. But heaven, with the pearly gates and streets of gold and singing angels eternally praising God on his throne, is based on scripture, mostly from Revelation. In 1 Corinthians 2.9, Paul claims that no one can conceive of heaven. He goes on to contradict himself, and the authors of Revelation and John's Gospel contradict that in spectacular form, along with pretty much every Christian since then. Pastors, New Testament authors, church fathers, artists, crusaders, inquisitors, reformers, missionaries, and authors of popular books have been claiming for centuries that they know heaven is for real and they can tell you what it's like and how to get there. The fact is that no one knows for sure what's coming after until they go themselves. In Revelation 21, the author writes, quote, and the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, and the street of the city was pure gold. End quote. God sits on a large, garish throne, matching the design sensibilities of the rest of heaven. Everyone is wearing white for some reason and even wears crowns. As Valerie Tirico observed, Our desperate, goat-herding Iron Age ancestors may have yearned for the trappings of royalty. They may have heard rumors of gold and jewels amassed by pharaohs or kings or tribal warlords and wished the same for themselves. So the fascination of the Bible writers with gold and precious stones is understandable. But their gem-encrusted paradise is the product of limited imagination, an inability to dream beyond the arts, technologies, and mythologies of their own culture.
1: And I don't believe, and in fact Marx never said, that religion is just an opiate. But religion and the afterlife fantasy have these things in common. First, they're man-made, that's very important. Uh, They they represent claims by humans to be able to interpret the divine and to give themselves power by doing so. We We all admit we don't know, that's because we can't know. So the people who have to leave the island right away are those who say they do. Who for centuries have tyrannized and still do millions of human beings by claiming to hold the keys of heaven and hell.
0: I think the subject of death and thinking about it as a naturalist probably deserves its own episode. There's obviously more than I could hope to say on death, or the human desire to evade it, and the fantasy that we might, but for now, I just wanted to very briefly share a couple insights from great thinkers that have affected me. Epicurus said, Why should I fear death? If I am, death is not. If death is, I am not. Why should I fear that which can only exist when I do not? End quote. So while dying is probably not pleasant, though there's evidence that you trip like crazy as your brain shuts down, death itself is nothing to be feared by definition. As Mark Twain put it, I do not fear death. I had been dead for billions and billions of years before I was born, and had not suffered the slightest inconvenience from it. The afterlife fantasy isn't just a harmless illusion that comforts the grief-stricken. It's absolutely counterproductive to any project of improving this world, or of appreciating this life as much as you could. I have an episode coming up where we touch on Marx and Nietzsche's view that the religious concern with otherworldly matters is poisonous and detrimental to this life, the only one we have. It prevents you from getting or even recognizing the things you want or need, but it also prevents you from fully experiencing how wonderful and beautiful our universe is keeping you at arm's length from this world and your own existence. The philosopher Albert Camus said, If there is a sin against life, it consists perhaps not so much in despairing of life as in hoping for another life, and in eluding the implacable grandeur of this life.
1: This world is not my home i'm just a passing through my treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue the angels beckon me from heaven's open door and i can't feel at home in this world anymore
0: that's all i have for you today i have a new patron to thank anonymous user thank you anonymous i want to thank my patron hall of fame Jesta, Phil Stillwell, and Richard Crosson, And you can support this show on a per-episode basis at patreon.com counter, where you can earn early access to every episode and access to bonus episodes. If you don't have the money to support on Patreon, but you still want nothing to happen when you die, you can add me on Facebook, leave a five-star review, or tell your friends about the podcast. Our theme music was written and performed by the band Wailers. The song is called Magic Tricks and was used with permission. Thank you for joining me today. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll see you next time.
1: And I can't. Feel at home in this world anymore